How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll take a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity and privilege to study your word this evening. We continue to pray for our nation, for the security of our nation, for its strength. We pray for our president. We pray especially for him in the debate this evening. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct this country and keep us safe. And, of course, that means that we have leaders who honestly understand the issues today, that this is this global conflict with terrorism is ultimately a spiritual battle. It is a battle against the uh, forces of Satan, the uh, tools of Satan in terms of uh, religion and the extreme religion of Islam, and we desperately need a president and leaders who understand that dynamic. Father, we thank you that we have your word and that we have uh, the doctrine in your word that you use to mature us. We pray that as we study these things this evening, that we would uh, be responsive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. As we've gone through Genesis 12, we're at the intro here on the first three verses as we get into what God is going to do with Abram. God called out Abram, as we saw last time, while he's still in Ur of the Chaldees, and and the order of events is given, uh, looks lopsided to the way we normally want to look at things or understand how the scriptures, how, uh, how narrative works. But according to according to Hebrew narrative, you usually give your overview, and then you come back and give the details. So the overview dealt with the movement of the family to Haran. And now in Genesis 12:1 we get the intro as to what caused that movement. And Genesis, just to review and get this in your head. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 4 reads, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, lot with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So verse 4 gives us the summary of his movement. 
Now, one of the key things to understand here is the contrast between Abram and what God is doing with Abram and in Abram's life, what God is doing in the rest and what God is allowing to continue in the rest of the world. And the pattern that we saw goes under the doctrine of separation, that God calls out a people for his name. In the Old Testament, the people were the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That doesn't mean that every Jew is saved by means of birth. But God is working through them to be a missionary organization. And that's another element in the first part of chapter 12. These three verses provide a foundation for missions. This is God's insertion in the Old Testament uh, into the uh, Gentile world that is in rebellion against him. Now, verse 1 of this chapter expresses the divine plan to separate Abram from the divine cosmic system, to get out of his country his family and separate from his family and from his father's house down to the minute detail and to go to a land that God would show him. And we've seen that Abram is living in the very heart of the kingdom of Nimrod. Now, the kingdom of Nimrod was all given by way of introduction back in chapter 11. And the original culture of the Tower of Babel, which was built on the earliest form of internationalism, that man would unite together and solve their own problems uh, apart, totally apart from God. That provides the context. God gives the first command to separate, and then he gives the, there's a summary of the divine promise in verse 2, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great. Now we have to understand that last clause, to make your name great, in juxtaposition to what just happened with the Tower of Babel. If you go back and look at Genesis 11.4, when the followers of Nimrod gathered together, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. See, in contrast to man who is constantly trying to solve his own problems, elevate himself, make something out of his own accomplishments independently from God, you have God who is the one who is going to work to make uh, Abram's name great. Is that, that was on a minute ago. I covered it up. Okay. This is the contrast. So God is going to um, make Abram's name great in contrast to what is going on at the Tower of Babel. They're out there trying to make uh, assert their own autonomy over against God. And what this shows is that at the very core of a lot of international activity is spiritual motivation. This is one of the things you're never going to get on the evening news, you're not going to find it on Good Morning America, the Today Show, or even on Fox News. You're only going to get this if you come to history from a framework of Scripture. That ultimate reality, the most important thing that is going on in the history of mankind, has to do with what God is doing in history. And that structure begins by understanding the this juxtaposition between the Tower of Babel and that you have 
one segment of humanity that is in rebellion against God and that God started to work in the midst of this rebellious mass of humanity with one individual, Abram. And it's going to be through his descendants that he ultimately is going to win back what has been taken by Satan. This is Satan's world, Satan's domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the uh, prince of the earth. He's the god of this age. And he has usurped control. And so God is going to take this back through this through this one individual. Now, as we look at the summary of the these verses, uh, verse three, two represents the divine promise. Verse three that summarizes the divine protection. He promises certain things in verse two, and then he he gives the protection in verse three. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now that provides an important structure for all of human history too. That human history does not revolve around God's plan for the United States of America. It doesn't, didn't revolve around God's plan for Britain a hundred years ago. It didn't revolve around God's plan for Germany under Bismarck. It didn't revolve around God's plan for France back in the 17th century. It revolves around what God is doing in Israel. And you say, well, we're in the church age. We may be in the church age, but that does not mean that Israel is in, and what God is doing among the Jews is inconsequential. The focus today, and since the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 A.D., has been for been on the church, a unique people of God. But nevertheless, the Jews are still God's people, and especially if we're near the end of the church age when things are going to uh, culminate with the church age and with the church, and the shift is going to be towards Israel, then that again becomes important. So God, the promise of God's blessing and protection for the Jews is embedded in verse 3, that God will bless those who bless the Jews. And that means those who are kind to the Jews, those who treat them well, God will bless, and he will curse or treat lightly, or curse, that is, curse heavily, those who treat the Jews lightly. And then the conclusion is that not you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. Well, that's the summary. We'll get into some details in just a minute. What we see in the life of Abram as we go through this are four key doctrines, four key doctrines that are picked up later on in the New Testament and uh, developed. And Abram becomes the picture of these doctrines. First is faith alone justification, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul uses this and develops this in Galatians chapter 4. How do you understand justification? The justification is apart from the works of the law. Justification doesn't have anything to do with personal morality. It doesn't have anything to do with religion. It doesn't have anything to do with church attendance. Justification has to do with simply faith alone in Christ alone. And the key verse for this is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And this is picked up and discussed in uh, Romans chapter 5. 
And we will spend a lot of time on that when we get there to understand justification. This is the model. It's interesting. The abstract doctrines you get into in the New Testament, whether you're talking about or any of these, uh, election, justification, glorification, sanctification, are all illustrated in concrete ways in the Old Testament. And that's the way you should, we should teach and understand doctrine a lot of times is to look at the concrete. So we go back and we look at Abram's justification at salvation. The second key doctrine that's pictured in the life of Abram is the post-salvation faith rest drill. And post-salvation faith rest drill shows that as Abram goes through his life from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, Abram is going to go through approximately ten tests. It's interesting. I've gone through this a couple of times and and uh, still working on the organization of this. But it looks like it's ten tests, which is an interesting fact in Genesis because the writer of Genesis seems to organize things in terms of sevens and tens. Remember, Abram was the tenth generation. Uh, Noah was the tenth generation from Adam. Abraham is the tenth generation from Noah. And then we also have an organization of things in terms of seven, seven days. We'll see that there's seven verbs in the Abrahamic promise here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Same thing when it's reiterated to Isaac. There's seven verbs. When it's reiterated to Jacob, it's seven verbs. So this is, this emphasizes at least or indicates the unity of authorship here, which is totally against the liberal view that some people just sort of cobble this together. It was a bunch of disjointed um, manuscripts and traditions that were just sort of cobbled together and patched together like a patchwork quilt sometime later. But this shows that there's one author. He may have a lot of source material in front of him, as I believe Moses did, but under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he is creating... Uh, not just a theological and doctrinal masterpiece, but it's a literary masterpiece. And all of these intricacies are, are part of the, of the picture and part of the literature of the scripture. Now, as, as Abram goes through these tests, in each test we're going to see how certain problem-solving devices work. Abram becomes a picture for the faith rest drill, primarily. But other elements enter in. So that is the key. This is what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews chapter 11. Also in Hebrews 11, we learn that another key doctrine with Abram is a personal sense of his eternal destiny. That he's not just living his life in terms of the immediate, but that he has a focus on his, uh, the, the city that's built without hands, whose architect is God. He's focusing on eternal things. He never, in his, in his temporal life, never owns any land other than his burial site in the promised land. But he knows that it's going to be his. So he lives in light of that reality. And then the fourth key doctrine is election, because God chooses to work through Abram and his descendants. We're not told why he chose Abram. And I think this is very important for understanding the doctrine of election and we get in, when we get even into the New Testament is that uh, we have to recognize that just because God doesn't say why he chose someone doesn't mean there isn't a reason that he chose someone. Okay, now that's an important thing to understand because when you get into a lot of the discussion over the doctrine of election, 
One of the hidden things in the way uh, election is often taught is election is unconditional. That means it's not conditioned uh, in the Calvinistic uh, structure. It's not conditioned on something that is in man. Now, I'm oversimplifying the whole thing here because I'm not getting into the discussion. What it's based on is something in God. God is the ultimate ruler of the universe, and he makes those decisions. But it's different to say that there is uh, It's two different statements. There is no condition, and no condition is stated. See, those are two different things. There is no condition. God, does God just randomly select people? Any, many, 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 mo? I'll take you, but not you. I'll take you, but not you. Which is how it, unconditional election often is taught and comes across and is often held. Is that God just chooses people for whatever reason. Or that he has a reason, but it's not stated. And this is the other side of the emphasis that you'll hear from many people, that God's reason is based on what he allows genuine freedom in the framework of individual volition. Nevertheless, God is still the ultimate determiner. So we'll get into that in some degree as we look at this picture. And when God chooses Abram, it's and the election here, uh, just another side observation, the election here isn't soteriological. He's not choosing Abram for salvation. He's choosing Abram for other purposes in human history. But these are four key doctrines that are illustrated, emphasized in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 11, when it talks about the election of Israel, it's talking about the, God's corporate choice of the nation Israel for his divine purposes. So we'll look at these as we go through on the life of Abram. Another thing that we, we have seen already is that this initial call to Abram took place while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees. So he's at home. He is uh, with his family in the center of the birth of paganism, the birth of cosmic thinking, and God calls him out from the midst of that. And what God is doing is sitting, setting up a fifth column in the devil's world. The, the devil becomes the god of this age, the ruler of this world, after Adam's fall. And now God is going to call out one individual within the devil's world. Now, I use the term fifth column. And the term fifth column originated during the Spanish Civil War when there were four columns of rebel troops under uh, Franco. Uh, actually, they were under the direct control of General Emilio Mola. And when he was interviewed about um, how they would take Madrid, they were on the outskirts of Madrid and uh, attacking Madrid. They had four columns of troops approaching the city. And he said that... Uh, that they had a contingent of supporters inside the city who would function as a fifth column in their army. And that's where that term came from. And so now it's used to refer to a group of people, a group of insurgents inside uh, of, a, of a country or a culture. Sometimes it's used to refer to, to spies or the saboteur or the network that's operating uh, inside of an enemy country. And in that sense... That's the sense in which I'm using it. The world is at enmity with God, and yet God has inserted 
a counter-revolutionary force, a counter-cultural force inside the world. In the Old Testament, it was the Jews, and in the New Testament, it's the church. It is believers, and we are to function as God's representatives in a fallen world. And eventually, through the descendants of Abram, specifically through the seed of Abram, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, God is going to defeat Satan, who is the present ruler of the earth, and Jesus Christ will be installed as the ruler of the earth, and God will gain back that territory which was lost. So this it begins with Abram. Abram then is the key to history, and the Jews are the key to history. Now, in Acts 7-2, we see the dynamics of what went on. We, we've covered this already. This is in P, uh, Stephen's speech to the, the um, Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father of Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to leave your country, your relatives, and come to the land that I will show you. In verse 4, then he came out of the land of Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So that gives us the framework. Verse 5 introduces the concept of possession or inheritance. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child... He promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. That's the framework for understanding Abraham's faith, which is picked up by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.8, where he says that it is by faith, that is the operation of the faith rest drill. And we looked at this the last time, that faith, faith here doesn't simply talk about the act of trusting, because uh, that, that's too shallow. It is the act of trusting in revealed doctrine. It has not, it includes not only the idea of, of trust, but also the object of trust. It's not faith in faith. It's not this mystical power. And you often see this in modern charismatic, uh, theology. Uh, you run across it nine times out of ten with these televangelists. And one of the phrases that I hear Heard it from somebody this morning on television. I was channel surfing and hit some uh, strange charismatic on TV. And and uh, a woman, which immediately shows they're in rebellion and out of the will of God, contrary to 1 Timothy 2.12. But she said, we need to be believing God for things. We need to be believing. And you hear this verbiage. And I've heard other people pick up on this because they're on the airwaves so much. People pick this up. And that verbiage is treating faith as if it's a metaphysical power. Faith isn't a metaphysical power. Faith in Scripture is knowledge. It is a sure and certain knowledge of how God works and the way things are. It is not tapping into some sort of spiritual law of the universe, which is how the name it and claim it prosperity gospel works. It, it treats faith as this kind of metaphysical power that if you just tap into it, then you will get whatever it is you want. But it is belief in revelation. And see, God revealed certain things to Abram. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have direct revelation. And God calls him to go out, and so he believes God. He trusts that God knows what he's talking about, and he leaves. He goes to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. 
but he never received that, as, as Stephen pointed out. He never received that as a possession or inheritance. And then we're told he went out not knowing where he was going. That's often the case with faith. You just don't know what's going to happen. You're just trusting God. You're totally outside of your normal comfort zone and security level. And then in verse 9 of Hebrews 11, by faith, and this is ongoing faith rest drill operation, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise. And see, there's the focus. It's a land of promise. What's your faith rest drill? What's stage one of the faith rest drill? Mixing faith with the promises of God. Abraham is not just believing God to believe God. It's not faith in faith. It is faith in a specific promise of God. So he dwells in the land of promises in a foreign country, and dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, this is that uh, personal sense of eternal destiny. So... Verse 5 shows that, that Abram's motivation, by the time he left Ur, he had reached uh, spiritual adolescence, and he understood he had an eternal destiny, and that was his motivation. Now we get back to uh, looking at verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. Let's start taking it apart a little bit. We have already to some degree. God says to Abram, get out of your country and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So this is the first imperative. There are two imperatives in these, in these, uh, in these verses. The first is to get out of your country, to leave your home. And the second is to be a blessing, but they're not of equal weight. An imperative can be used a lot of different ways. We use imperatives in different ways, even in our own language. Um, it's not always as clear for us. But in Greek and Hebrew, you have various uh, different shades of meaning. For example, if you are a, uh, a boss and you're talking to your employee and you say you give him a job to do, then that's an imperative of command from a superior to an inferior. Yet if you're an inferior and you're asking for making a request of someone, you would, in, in both Greek and Hebrew, you would also use an imperative. It's not a command. It is a, an, called an imperative of request. And this is what uh, you have in prayer. When people pray to God, they use imperatives in the Scripture. But they're not mandating to God. They're not commanding God. This is, what again, what, the, uh, what happens with when you don't understand grammar and you don't understand the context or the historical context of a language, this is what happens again in Pentecostal, charismatic, name it, claim it theology, is they say you just have to tell God what you want and he'll give it to you. Well, that's uh, that's presumptuous. You can't do that. It is a uh, imperative of request. Well, you also have an imperative of result. And that's what you have in verse 2 where it says, And you shall be a blessing... This is giving the result of the previous uh, promises. So even though you have two imperatives here, they have uh, completely different ideas. Now, as you get into the life of, get into this command, God gives him a mandate to get out of your country, to leave your family, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. That's the that is the mandate, and so. Abram has to decide whether or not he is going to 
respond positively, positively to this command. That is the first test of faith in the life of Abraham. Will he obey God and leave or not? And he says, count it all joy. In fact, what you have here is something really interesting I just discovered today. As I always point out, the, try to point out the little intricacies in the Hebrew, which the writer does this intentionally to connect things for us. What we have here is a cal imperative of the Hebrew word halach. It looks like this, but in the imperative it looks simply like this. And it's just L-E-K, sometimes it's pronounced L-E-K-H, lek from halak, H-A-L-A-K. Now, this imperatival form to go is used one other time in, 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 uh, in Ab- Abraham, and that's in Genesis chapter 22. So if you just hold your place here briefly and turn over to 22.2. Now, it came about after these things that God, what, tested Abraham. This is the last test. I said there were ten tests in Abraham's life. This is the last one. The first one is the one we're studying. That God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he that is God said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So he says, Take your son and go to the land of Moriah. And here we have this same verb form again. So you have your first test in 12.1, go. Then you have your nine other, your, your eight other tests. Then you come to your tenth test, and you, you have in 22, 22.2, you have the same command, go. Now, where do you go in 12.1? You're going to a land where I will show you. He has no clue where he's headed. What happens in 22.2? Go to one of the mountains of Moriah that I will show you. Again, Abram doesn't know where God's taking him. He's just told to go. But the the test is virtually the same. Now, what we have in 12.1 is partial obedience. He leaves his country, but he does, and he leaves his clan, that is his relatives, but he doesn't leave his father, and he doesn't leave Lot behind. So it's partial obedience. And when you get down to chapter 22, and he's going to he's told to do something even uh, more demanding, to take his, this one promised son up to Moriah and to sacrifice him, there is 100% obedience. And what we see here is that. As Abraham goes through this sanctification process, there are a series of tests, and as he goes, some tests he passes, some tests he fails, but in the process he learns who, who, um, he learns who God is, he learns about his provision, and Abraham hits spiritual maturity and trusting God when he gets to the end of the line. I mean, it's just fascinating how the writer brings these things out through the simple use of, of uh, vocabulary and the Hebrew text. So all of this relates then 
to the principle that we have in James 1, 2, and following, where we're told, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, because you know that the testing of your faith, and when I taught that when I first came here six and a half years ago, I pointed out that the faith there isn't testing your ability to trust. It's testing your ability to trust in doctrine. It's a test of doctrine. It's not a test in, in can you believe. Everybody can believe. Everybody uses faith all kinds of ways every single day. You believe in yourself. You believe in this. You believe in that. You believe this lie, that lie. You believe in human potential. You believe in all kinds of things all day long. You believe in empiricism. You believe in rationalism. But the issue is, are you going to be trusting in doctrine to handle the situations in life? And so in James 1-2, we're told that we can count it joy because we we know something. When we encounter tests, as Abraham encounters this test of God to tell him to move, you because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, produces endurance, and endurance will bring about the completion of maturity. That's how we grow, is from test to test to test. And this is brought out with Abraham, and it's also brought out in James chapter 2 when it talks about the evidence of, that is, living faith as opposed to dead faith, non-productive faith. So Abram is the picture in the New Testament of saving faith justification as well as ongoing post-salvation spiritual growth. So this is a primary thing that we will be focusing on as an overall or umbrella doctrine in terms of the Christian life. Now, I recognize we're in the Christian life, and Abraham did not have certain elements. For example, we start off, we talk about our ten stress busters. They didn't have ten stress busters. They only had eight. The first, the first problem-solving device is confession, which they had in the Old Testament. The second one for us is to walk by the Spirit, but they didn't have that. The third is the faith rest drill. That's the primary means of operation in the Old Testament. Then you had uh, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God. Eighth is impersonal love for all mankind. Uh, nine is occupation with Christ. And ten is perfect happiness. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have occupation with Christ, and they didn't have walking by the Spirit, but they have all of the others. And so the emphasis with Abraham is going to be on the faith rest drill and the personal sense of uh, his eternal destiny. And the end result is that Abraham is given the title Friend of God, which is a very special title that is not given to anyone else in the Old Testament. And it is that title that indicates that he has hit spiritual adulthood with the personal love for God. So all of this is going to be a great challenge for us to learn a lot of different things about the dynamics of the spiritual life. We can make certain application from this. That's not the direct interpretation, but it's certainly the framework and application that we derive from this, from this passage. So Abraham is told to leave his country. Now, this emphasizes or calls upon him to exercise uh, his faith rest drill and to start 
moving out. As a result of that, he's told to leave his family. He's told to leave his, uh, I mean, his country, his family, and his father's house. And notice how it gets progressively narrow. His country, his his family, that is the extended family, his clan, and the father's house. He is told to basically get out of his comfort zone, to get out of an uh, uh, area where he's familiar, to head to an unknown destination, to leave the familiar and the secure, even if it is pagan and evil and he doesn't like it, uh, he knows what it's all about. He can function there in uh, Ur of the Chaldees, but he's told to leave there and to leave the familiar and that which is relatively secure and go to the uncertain and the unfamiliar. But God promises protection, and this is what we find in verse 2. He promises protection. And in verse 2 and verse 3, God promises seven blessings, seven positive things for Abraham. And here they are on the overhead. First of all, and it's just, just make a list. You can go through it. You don't need to know the Hebrew to do this. You can just pick it out from the verbs in verses 2 and 3. And that's the key. What is God promising? Go to the verbs. Number one, I will make you a great nation. Number two, I'll, I'll bless you. Number three, I will make your name great. And then fourth, the result of this is you will be a blessing. It's an imperative in the Greek, but the imperative is an imperative of result. What happens in the, in the imperative is that uh, it expresses actions uh, which are the result of the previous imperfect tense verbs. So he's not saying go be a blessing, although that's not necessarily excluded, but it's the idea that I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you and make your name great, and the result of this is that you will be a blessing. And then in verse 5 he says, I will also bless those who bless you. And verse 6, and him who curses you I will curse. And then seventh, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's seven verbs that encapsulate what God is going to do for Abram. He'll make him a great nation, bless him, make his name great, which has the idea of, of giving him stature, making him important, giving him, uh, making his life consequential in the history of mankind. What's interesting is that you have the same sevenfold structure when God relates his blessings, his promise of blessing to both Isaac and Jacob. In Genesis 26, Verses 3 and 4, you have seven verbs. Do you think this is accidental? you think it just happened that way? You have seven verbs as God outlines what he's going to do for Isaac as a result of his relationship with God, and it's the ongoing, or it's the reiteration, ongoing reiteration of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. First of all, I, he says to Isaac I, in Genesis 26, uh, three, the Lord, uh, he says, sojourn in this land, that's the command, and then I will be with you, number one, and I will bless you, number two. Number three, I will give you and your descendants all these lands. Notice he reiterates that same promise that he had made earlier to Abraham. It focuses on the land. Fourth, he says, I will establish the oath I made with Abraham. That's the covenant. 
The same covenant he made with Abraham is going to make with Isaac. Fifth, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. Sixth, he says, I will give your descendants all these lands. Seventh, and by these descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Have you noticed there's a key word that's showing up in all these statements? That's the word blessing. It's used five times in Genesis 12. It's used a couple of times here in Genesis 26. And then in Genesis 27, 28 to 29, Isaac blesses blesses his son Jacob. We all know or should be familiar with the story of how Isaac had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau was his favorite. Esau was the hunter. Esau was the athlete. Esau was the outdoorsman. Esau was the first one to come out of his mother's womb. So Esau is his father's favorite. But God is operating on a principle all through Genesis that in contrast to the world's way of doing things, that the older is the one who receives the primary blessing, God operates to the principle that the older serves the younger that the blessing goes through the uh, the younger. And it's, uh, uh, remember, Ishmael is the first uh, born through Hagar, but Isaac gets the blessing. Esau is the first born of the twins, but uh, Jacob gets the blessing. And Joseph is the is one of the last born of, uh, of uh, Jacob's sons, and he is the one who gets the blessing. So uh, Rebecca knows that, that Jacob or uh, uh, Isaac will bless Esau, and so she is conniving along with uh, with Jacob. He's called Yaakov. Uh, I mean, excuse me. Uh, Jacob means supplanter, and he so she connives with him to dress him up. He's going to put on a, a a leather coat that has hair on it, so he'll be hairy like his brother Esau. And he is, he'll smell like a hunter and she's going to fix a favorite stew for, uh, Isaac so that, uh, he, uh, that, that, that Esau would prepare for him so that Jacob can go in and, and act like he's Esau. By this time, Isaac's old. He can't see well. He's not sure which son is there. So, uh, Jacob deceives him and he gets the blessing. And the blessing is stated in Genesis 27. Verses uh, 28 and 29. Genesis 20, 27, 28, and 29. We're told that um, as he enters the room, go back to verse 26, and his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven. See, here is where he begins to state those uh, positive things that God is going to do for him. Number one, may God give you of the dew of heaven. And this was an idiom for prosperity. May God uh, make you prosperous. In an agricultural land, it was important to have enough water. Number two, let the people serve you. Three, and the nations bow down to you. Fourth, uh, be the Lord or master over your brothers. Fifth, may your mother's sons bow down to you. In other words, Esau bowed down to, to uh, Jacob. 
Sixth, cursed be everyone who curses you. And seventh, blessed be everyone who blesses you. So if we take the verbs, once again, we have seven verbs. So we see this same structure again and again going through these promises related to the ongoing work of the of the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 2, Genesis, back to Genesis 12, 2, God promises, first of all, that he would make of Abraham a great nation. And by great, he means a nation that has prominence in the world, one that has not simply size or magnitude, but one that has a significant role in history. It is the centerpiece of God's plan in history. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And third, I will make your name great. That means he is going to honor or distinguish Abraham's name. He will be a man of consequence. In his lifetime, this did not take place, but it takes place uh, through his descendants. And then he says, as a result, you will be a blessing. And we will see these themes work themselves out all the way through the life of Abraham, that he is going to be a blessing to others through blessing by association. So verse 2 gives us the promises that God makes. These are the unconditional promises God makes to Abraham. He will make him a great nation. Here he is. He's childless. And we've already been told that Sarah is barren. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And then in verse 3, we have the protection. God's promise to protect Abraham and his descendants. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. And there we have two different words for cursing. The first word is uh, kalel, meaning to treat lightly. And I will treat lightly the one who, uh, excuse me, I will curse him. That first word, it's, it's reversed in the Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew actually says, he who uh, curses you, that is, he who treats you lightly, uh, kalel, I will curse harshly. And there's the Hebrew word aror. That's the same word that is used of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. But the key idea here is the idea of blessing. The idea of blessing. That God is promising blessing. And now this is one of those words that Christians use a lot, like holy and a few other words that people don't really know what it means. Sometimes people will use happiness. That blessing means happiness or blessing means joy. Often people think that blessing has to do with material prosperity. Now, it can be manifest in any of those areas. If you do a study of blessing in Scripture, it relates to the divine promise, which may include protection or prosperity or health or grace or happiness or peace. Notice I put or in there. It is not a promise that if God blesses you, you're not going to have problems, that you're going to have health, that you are going to have uh, uh, financial wealth. It's, it's none of that. It is that God is going to provide for you everything you need so that you can have perfect peace and stability and tranquility in life 
And it's not going to be based on what you do. It's not going to be based on the circumstances of your life. It's going to be based on your grace-based relationship with God. And the source of blessing is never what we do. The source of blessing is always the possession of righteousness. Here is God up here. He is plus R, perfect righteousness, and absolute justice. The righteousness of God represents God's eternal and absolute standard. And the justice of God represents the application of that standard to mankind. So that when man falls short of God's standard of righteousness, the justice of God operates in terms of condemnation. When the righteousness of God is met, then the justice of God operates in terms of divine blessing. Now, when you get down here and you look at a human being, we're born minus R, and we're under the condemnation of God. We're born under, under eternal condemnation. But when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, it is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to our account at the instant of salvation. And God then looks at that plus R. And because of that plus R that we possess, God is free to bless us. So God is now blesses us not because of anything we do, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what happens with Abram. Genesis 15:6 is a parenthetical reminder that before he left Ur the Chaldees, before he received the call of God, Abram had trusted in God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So everything that is flowing out of this is a result of the fact that Abram possesses that imputation of righteousness. It's not his. God's not blessing Abraham because he's got wealth. He's not blessing Abraham because he's got a great personality, leadership traits, he's from a wonderful family, or any of those things. He's blessing him because he has imputed righteousness. And that's the same reason God blesses you, is because of your imputed righteousness. Now, God has given us a package of both uh, temporal blessings and eternal blessings. And those blessings are, are also comprised of logistical, two kinds, logistical blessings and advanced blessings. Now, logistical blessings are not based on your maturity. God's going to pour them out to you. He's going to provide the air to breathe. He's going to provide enough food to eat, keep you alive physically. He's going to provide Bible doctrine so you can grow spiritually. It will be made available to you. And through logistical grace, you can grow and advance. And as you grow and advance in maturity and develop capacity for blessing, then God is going to distribute temporal blessings. And you will also uh, acquire eternal blessings. These are crowns and rewards. And this is designed as a basis for giving us incentives for growing spiritually and advancing in the spiritual life. But if we don't grow, the result is going to be divine discipline and loss of rewards because we don't have the capacity and because God is uh, punishing us, disciplining us for disobedience. Now, as we grow in life, 
we see that there's two sources of blessing. One, one happens just because we are, have imputation of uh, righteousness, and that brings us logistical grace blessing. Secondly, as we grow and advance and develop capacity uh, for life, we have capacity righteousness. And we call it capacity righteousness because that results in getting advanced grace blessings. And as we get the distribution of those advanced grace blessings, we are blessed, but also there is blessing by association to others, to those who are around us. And we can be in a situation where, where, uh, we're in, di- we're, uh, we may be in disobedience, but we're married to someone or we work for someone or we go to a church that is being blessed and we're blessed by association. And we may be out in the Tuleys and we may be carnal as the day is long. Nevertheless, there's a certain amount of blessing that comes our way because of association. And so blessing will overflow in our lives as it does with Abraham. See, those who bless Abraham will also be blessed. Blessing by association. So it proceeds out in um, concentric circles. So here you are. And as you grow in advance in your spiritual life, your family is going to benefit. And that's blessing by association. As your family benefits, those uh, in your social life, your friends, are, uh, and extended relatives are going to benefit. Then it's going to affect those uh, with whom you work. Those in your business, you may have a very prosperous Fortune 500 company, and that's just because it's got five or six employees that have grown to spiritual maturity, and they're being blessed by association. So you've got you've got work, and then the greater circle out here is the nation, because as a believer uh, grows and advances, even the nation will be blessed. As you have a large number of mature believers with a solid biblical work ethic and labor, they're going to bring financial prosperity to the nation. They're going to vote for the right people in office, and they're going to make wise decisions uh, in terms of legislation, wise decisions in terms of leadership. And that is because you have a large number of believers in the nation who are making wise decisions. But if you have a, a lot of believers who make foolish decisions, operate on emotion, or you don't have very many believers, they don't have much of an impact, and that has a negative impact on the nation as it will in other spheres of life. So what Abraham is told is that he he will be a source of blessing to others and that there will be blessing by association simply to those who treat the Jews well. But those who treat them lightly... And today we live in an era when anti-Semitism is on the rise. Anti-Semitism is increasing in Europe, partly and primarily because there are so many Muslims in Europe now. Almost 50% of uh, European population is Islam. It's, it's advancing beyond that in some countries, or it will within the next few years. In fact, some have gone so far as to say that by the end of this century, by... by um, 2002, Europe will be completely Muslim simply because of immigration. This is why immigration has to be addressed, not just here, but in Europe, 
by political leaders, and yet nobody, it's a hot potato. Nobody wants to deal with it. You just watch. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans. Just watch him squirm when anybody talk, starts talking about shutting down the borders. But we have to shut down the borders because what's happening is we're bringing in so many people, and you can trace this back 150 years. I, I firmly believe you go back to the middle middle 19th century and one of the major factors in uh, destroying the positive Protestant uh, doctrinal impact on this nation was the vast influx of immigrants who came from either a Roman Catholic or a non-Christian frame of reference, and they were not assimilated into a Protestant Judeo-Christian worldview. And you just had floods of uh, immigrants coming in in the 19th century, and in the 20th century you started getting a lot of non-Christians and, and Asians and Buddhists and Hindus, and of course that had its impact, and by the, 19, by the late 20th century you don't need, uh, uh, you don't need immigrants to bring in those ideas. Americans have gone apostate, and they're absorbing those ideas on their own. But we must have a solid policy on immigration. But I'm getting getting distracted. We have to recognize so that uh, immigration is messing up Europe. You've got all these uh, Muslims that are in there. You have an increase in anti-Semitism there. And the new anti-Semitism is expressing itself as anti-Zionism. And, uh, and it's very subtle. But you have to recognize if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be supportive of Israel. That doesn't mean we... Uh, validate every legislative decision that is made by by the Jews, by the state of Israel, but we do support them, and we're going to stand by them, and we're going to be a source of protection. And that is what a, a major issue today. It's a major factor in in what's going on internationally. What one of the things that drives the motivation behind the uh, behind terrorism is that America is the great Satan because we protect that Zionist entity, they call it. And we have to recognize that this that there is a spiritual dynamic at the heart of history. And this is what is driving these events. And so we have to stand firm in a uh, pro-Israel position, and an anti-Zionist position is just a subtle form of anti-Semitism. Yet it's on the rise both in Europe and in the United States. But the Scriptures promise that if we bless the Jews, if we treat them well, then God in turn will bless us by association. Now next time we'll come back and look at Abram's response and he how he uh, moves out from Haran and moves into the Promised Land with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to focus on these things, to see the uh, way you're working in history through the descendants of Abraham, and that even though they are apostate, you have not forgotten them. They have not stumbled, as Paul says in, in Romans 11, uh, 10, they have not stumbled that they should fall, but right now it is through their fall that uh, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But there will be a restoration of Israel and eventually uh, all Israel will be saved. Our Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.